Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. All right, we're continuing today uh, with uh, 1 Corinthians, and I'm looking at chapter 2. I've entitled this, A Mystery Hidden Since the Foundation of the World. And both Paul and uh, Jesus will talk about the, the gospel in those terms, and so I hope to explain this. In Japan, we lived at the base of Mount Scuba, uh, where the gods descended. And you could actually see Scuba and Fuji. If you got at the top of Scuba, you could see Mount Fuji. And these are two of the most sacred mountains in Japan. But actually, Mount Scuba is even more sacred than Mount uh, Fuji. In the act of giving birth to the fire god, uh, Homusubi, Izanami, who is the female goddess, was fatally burned and went to Yomi, the land of darkness. And the grief-stricken Izanagi, who is her husband, but also her brother, followed her there. But she had eaten the food of that place and could not leave. She became angry when he lit a fire and saw her rotting and covered with maggots. It is the place of the dead. A horrified Izanagi fled with a host of women and then Izanami herself in pursuit. And after reaching the entrance to Yomi, Izanagi placed a stone across it thus sealing in Izanami and breaking their union. And then after being in the place of the dead, Izanagi bathed himself in the sea to purify himself from contact with death. And as he bathed, a number of deities came into being. The sun goddess, Amaterasu, was born from his left eye. The moon god, Tsukuyomi, was born from his right eye. And the storm god, Susanoo, was born from his nose. An odd beginning for (laughs) a sermon uh, on the wisdom hidden since the foundation of the world. The religious myths are still present and still in the religion is very much practiced in Japan. But even in Japan, the modern world has dispossessed people of belief in the myths. I believe that Christ has demythologized the world for the most part, which means that societies can no longer function along primitive lines. And this is the situation in Corinth, a city filled with religion, with idols. The temple of Apollos was located in Corinth, the temple of Aphrodite, and a myriad of religious myths surrounding the city and the even the sacred games that were held there. And so when Paul describes the wisdom of the world, I believe he's talking about a singular thing, a singular sort of understanding. And I believe it is precisely this understanding that is undone by Christ. Let's read chapter 2, verse 6 to 8. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, uh, 
nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So throughout chapter 1 and 2, Paul pits the wisdom of man against the wisdom of God. And in these verses, human wisdom is depicted as that of the rulers of this age. You know, who are these rulers? Does this mean spiritual, demonic rulers, political rulers, kings, princes? I I don't know, and there's not agreement. Uh, Maybe he means all of these things, that something like the principalities and powers, the principles or the powers by which this world functions. I assume that he is describing the fallen wisdom that we can trace throughout the Bible, the the knowledge of good and evil. That uh, the way that we've all inherited uh, of knowing. And certainly this can be said of of Satan or of the serpent that, you know, he is this one of the rulers. He's the prince of of the power of the air. He's the ruler of this age. Uh, that will be cast out. And notice though that the cause, that none of the rulers of this age understood this. They, They did not understand the true nature of human wisdom or the true nature of the wisdom of God. He says if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. It was precisely their wisdom, Paul explains, which obstructed their understanding. Their understanding of the murder of Christ, right? In other words, their wisdom is structured in such a way that it would suppress what, you know, uh, Sigmund Freud calls the founding murder. But what is, if we look back in the Bible... When Cain murders Abel, he founds a city. The death of Christ can be linked to the logic behind the history of murder. Jesus himself makes this connection. Look at Matthew 23, 34 to 36. I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify and some of whom you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. But upon you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all this will come upon this generation. And of course... He's bookending the history of murder in the Hebrew Bible as Jesus has it. Abel is the first murder. Zechariah is the last murder. And he's saying the whole history of violence and murder. And this isn't just Jewish murder, right? That Abel goes back to the beginnings of mankind. He's saying that the history of murder on the earth is being laid at your feet. And the secret behind this understanding. That which... The secret hidden since the foundation of the world. 
is the way Jesus describes it. All the righteous blood shed on earth or a world history of murder is coming to fruition and exposure with the generation contemporaneous with Jesus. Jesus, in this discourse in Matthew and Paul and his explanation in 1 Corinthians, both contrast what wise, what the wise would consider nothing. And Jesus goes through, he says, well, the temple and the altar, you count as nothing. And Jesus, uh, you know, or Paul in his explanation says that the cross is foolishness, counted as nothing. Um, in fact, I think the temple and the altar, well, of course, the temple is the body of Jesus and the true altar is the cross. I think they're talking about the same thing, that what the world would discount and count as foolishness, both Jesus and Paul are saying, is the substance of wisdom. Um, that what is something... You know, gold, sacrifice, he goes through it in this in Matthew, I didn't read it, in the case of the Jews, but Paul has already talked about what do the rulers of this age consider, you know, as substantial? Wisdom, strength, nobility? Um, these are the real things and what is considered but nothing by the wise, you know, they're contrasted. And Paul is, you know, the temple of Jesus' body is for the, the wise of this world a non-entity. We can destroy Jesus. That's why they kill him. They don't understand who he is, the substance that, you know, they would presume is, is nothing. The rulers of this age would destroy the one who actually fills all things, the one who is Alpha and Omega. On the other hand, those things, you know, the gold, the sacrifice, uh, these are rendered a nullity by Jesus. Paul says, God has chosen the things that are not, in 128, so that he may nullify the things that are. And he's going to characterize an idol. He says the idol is a nothing. And so to all that is made an absolute something, by the wise is exposed as nothing by Christ. Okay, that's the basic setup here. But the question is how? How does Jesus do this? How does he expose this? In both Matthew and Corinthians, it is death, and specifically the death of Christ, as the culmination of power, the power to kill, which is the center of blind wisdom. Their blind wisdom caused them to kill Christ. Jesus says the Pharisees are like whitewashed tombs, giving the appearance of cleanness, but containing nothing but death. The scribes and Pharisees presume to, to build, Jesus says, the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And Jesus says, by doing this, he's quoting, you know, uh, giving voice. He says, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. They disassociate themselves from the murders committed by their forefathers. And by doing this, 
they remind, they, they're blind to their own murderous intent, intent. The murderous intent they share with their forefathers. Jesus says, you testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. And so by disclaiming their murderous intent, which in Luke, the same parallel passage, Luke says they became hostile after this conversation and began to plot how they might kill Jesus, how how they might entrap him. So basically they're saying, Jesus, you're all wrong. That's not what we're thinking. And then they say, let's kill him. They repeat the acts of their ancestors by refusing to acknowledge their own violence and by casting it off onto their far forefathers. But by doing this, they demonstrate they're controlled by the same logic. You know, this is the history of Christianity. The early Christians did the same thing. They said, well, you know, those Jews, they killed Christ. They're the Christ killers. Let's kill them. And so the history of murder continues. Um, The same logic that controlled the Pharisees. They do not recognize their own participation. We do not recognize our own participation in the logic, the wisdom that killed the Lord of glory. And this is what the the Hebrew scriptures are tracing. This is what Jesus is going to call upon. This is what Paul calls upon. I believe human religion does not expose, but it propagates the religion of the Jews. But the religion of the Jews is like all sacrificial religion that would scapegoat. You know, they would scapegoat Jesus, but there's always a scapegoat. And in the process, they rid themselves of the violence of their fathers. This is the definition of human wisdom. This is the definition of human religion. Myth and religion, like the Jews' honoring of the prophets, covers up the death-dealing nature of this, you know, this thing that they're doing. So, human wisdom, what Jesus and Paul will refer to as the foundation of the world constituted by humans. This is there in Matthew. We can just trace it, you know, in Genesis 3. What is this wisdom? Well, it's the the knowledge of good and evil, knowing through oppositional difference. Adam is pitted against Eve, and it results in the murder of Cain. We have a history of murder, and that's the history that Jesus is referring to. We have the foundational lie. You will not die. Believe the lie, you will not die and you die, right? Believe the lie and you will participate in the violence of Cain and all who follow. Of Lamech, who brags that he is going to be in the place of God in his vengeance. If Cain would be avenged seven times, Lamech brags to his wives Ada and Zila, Lamech will be avenged 70 times seven. And he is representative, seemingly, of the generation of Noah, who were all murderers. They were killers. They were psychopaths. And sacrificial religion is characterized, you know, the Old Testament characterizes it as a covenant with death. 
Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers, Isaiah says, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem, because you said we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol we have made a pact. Does that sound familiar? Izanami goes to Sheol, the place of the dead. Izanagi seals it over and keeps death covered. And yet it's out of that death that life is thought to spring. This is the history of myth. Every myth just will repeat this again and again. And this is what the Jews are doing. Instead of saying that death is the final enemy, they go and it describes in various places. They're going out to the tombs and worshiping death. Worshiping mot. Either literally calling death a god or worshiping the dead. God says, I spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, a people who continually provoke me to my face, Isaiah 65, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks, who sit among the graves and spend the night in secret places, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of unclean meat, who say, keep to yourself, they're saying this to God, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. They're saying, we have the truth in the graveyard. We have the truth in Sheol. We have the truth in death. I think Chris could tell us, if you, you can just go all over the world and look at the world's religions. You know, in Japan, every summer at Obon, people go out to the graveyards and they offer incense and fruit to the dead. If the dead like beer and cigarettes, they take beer and cigarettes, whatever the dead might have liked. And they worship the dead. They are kami. They are gods. They've entered into a covenant with death. The little story I told you at the beginning, the mythology just is repeated over and over and again in the world's religions. When they say to you, Isaiah says, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? Death, the grave, is the source of human wisdom. And of course, death and the grave is nothing. This is what Paul says, is it amounts to nothing. Death denied becomes death deified. It's made a refuge. In both passages, there is, you know, in Isaiah, the ironic fear of being conquered by enemy armies. And so they abandon the Yahweh religion in the midst of this fear And yet this fear, as the prophet points out, it's misdirected. Their fear is ultimately the fear of dying at enemy hands. And the covenant with death describes the universal human predicament. They they deny death, they deny the Yahweh religion, and they consult the dead. It is this logic traced and indicated in the Old Testament which Jesus calls upon. When he explains the meaning of his own death in John 15.25, they hated me for no reason. And he's appealing to the psalm. 
You know, do not let those who are wrongfully my enemies rejoice over me. David's describing being surrounded by his enemies. Nor let those who hate me without cause wink maliciously. There is no cause, and yet they do not speak peace, but they devise deceitful words against those who are quiet in the land. They opened their mouth wide against me. They said, aha! Our eyes have seen it. They're saying we've seen something that they've not seen. That we've, you know, they're accusing Jesus and they're, uh, and this is the history of murder that Jesus is appealing to. These words of scripture, he says in Luke 22 and Mark 15, have to be fulfilled in me. He let himself be taken for a criminal. Jesus is the scapegoat. One man must die, Caiaphas says, that the nation would survive. Pilate himself, who will crucify him, says, I find no fault against this man. And yet he, along with Peter, along with the crowd, are swept along in the the hysteria. Without reason, it says, without cause. They are the perpetrators of this murder. And this is true throughout history. This is the logic that they cannot access. Even Jesus on the cross says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. The wisdom of this world is always something that hides, that covers up. Death is covered over. It's sealed off. And it's deified. And Peter himself in Acts I know, brothers, that neither you nor your leaders had any idea what you're really doing. You're doing this thing, but you can't understand it. Persecutors always believe in the excellence of their cause. But in reality, as Jesus says, they hate without cause. In reality, they do do not know what they are doing. Jesus says in John... Why do you not understand why, what I say? Is it because you cannot bear to hear my word? And John is very explicit as to who the ruler that Paul might be talking about. The rulers of this age. You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Who is the devil? He was a murderer from the beginning. And has nothing to do with truth. Lies, murders, and this is the foundation Jesus identifies as constituting the world of man. There is no truth in him when he lies, when he speaks according to his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So Satan's native tongue is lying, and he's credited with the original homicide, which connects deception death, and the ruler of this world, John 12, 31. Who's the ruler in 1 Corinthians? I believe this is it, but of course I think it's not simply Satan, but it's all those who participate in the logic of Satan. Satan exercises his rule through proliferating murderous desire. The founding lie, you will not die, gives rise to the presumption That life and death are subject to human power. As Lamech explains to his wives, he controls who will live and who will die. I'll avenge myself 70 times 7. 
So the lie perpetuates. It's a double homicide. One murder follows another. The Jews say, oh, we had nothing to do with the death of the prophets. And then they perpetuate. Then they decide to kill Jesus by the same logic. To be a son of Satan is the same thing as being the son of those who have killed the prophets since the foundation of the world. Just as the Jews must of necessity kill Jesus to disassociate themselves. They're saying they want to disassociate themselves from his accusation. So too every murder is a cover up. We don't, you know, we're not, that's not true of us. And they kill Jesus and of course then they institute his words. In his crucifixion. Christ exposed the origins of this murderous chain. What had, he says, been hidden since the foundation of the world. There is no, by the way, in the Gospel of John, it's interesting, there's no demons and no demon possession and no exorcism. Did you ever notice? But Christ's crucifixion is depicted as a kind of cosmic exorcism. In John 12, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. How is the ruler cast out? Through the death of Christ. The death of Christ exposed the foundational lie, the founding murder, upon which ritual sacrifice is dependent. Dealing in death held out the hope of achieving deity. You'll be like gods, knowing good and evil, Genesis says. And in reality, the lie produced enslavement, the writer of Hebrews says, to the fear of death and to the one who wielded this fear. And so Christ, through his death, rendered powerless, the writer of Hebrews says, him who had the power of death, that is the devil, And by this means freed those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. The inherent universalism in the gospel, in the cross. You know, John pictures all men, when I am lifted up, all men are drawn to the cross of Christ. Why is that? Because the cross addresses the universal human predicament. The death of Christ has unshackled our fetters and exposed the violence to which we are a part. Freeing us for holiness, right? Now, an odd thing happens as the book of Revelation, the other books that reveal, that also in opening up the possibility for holiness, there is the possibility for extreme levels of violence. Jesus will predict this, you know, in in his apocalyptic predictions in the Gospels. Paul will predict this in various apocalyptic traditions. And the book of Revelation pictures a kind of apocalyptic violence. Now, it's obviously a good thing to expose this lie which humanity uh, has, which has bound humanity. But, of course, in a sense, this was the organizing principle in the society. The rivalries, jealousies, quarrels within the community 
were suppressed long enough that the crops could be planted and harvested and the violence be directed outside of the society. And of course what happens when the religions failed, which they inevitably failed in the various primitive societies, the society would fall back into chaos and the chaos of violence is all-consuming. And so this is what Jesus explains, that this world exists by dint of a foundation of suppressed evil, of a lie, of a wisdom that hides things. Jesus connects the bloodshed with the foundation of the world. The, the, the quote, you know, the, he's saying the foundation of the cosmos. It's like John's foundation with the world of human order shut off from God. This is not the foundation of Christ, but the alternative foundation of the darkness, of the lie, of deception, of human principalities and powers, the world of Satan, not the good world created by God, not the world founded by Christ. As Rene Girard has put it, it seems to imply that the foundation of the world, insofar as it results from a violent crisis, it denotes order insofar as it comes out of disorder. Think of the story of Izanami and Izanagi again. It's all disorder and chaos. And they then step into the disorder, the violence, and the death, and life arises from death. That is typical of the myths. But of course that's the case in primitive societies, that life is only maintained in the uh, implementation of violence and death. Gerard says the term has a medical use to mean the onslaught of a disease, the attack that provokes a resolution, that is attacked by a death-dealing lie giving rise to a violent crisis. And so, in destroying the capacity, and I believe that's what Christ has done, that we can no longer go back to primitive myths. And that's obviously the basis of the world has made unimaginable advances, technical advances, scientific advances. You know, uh, if everything is done by the gods, then you're always in fear of the gods. But at the same time, an unimaginable, unimaginable potential for destruction has been unleashed. You know, we call this mad, mutually assured destruction. It's a real thing. If the Soviets would launch a missile at us, we can launch a missile at them, and we can totally destroy each other. But it's not just this logical possibility, but there is the imaginative possibility that is unleashed by Christ of refounding the world order. Primitive peoples did not have access to the very ordering system of their society. But now we have multiple utopian dreams, you know, communism, socialism, fascism, even American liberal democracy in which there is the possibility of taking control of the basic organizing mechanisms of a society. 
Christ freed the human mind of the constraints of the primitive order. And of course, what has happened then, uh, that we can then order the world according to our own wishes. A kind of perverse millennialism. And so the past century is a kind of evidence that there has been strangely, and this is what Jesus predicted, untold violence has been unleashed with the good news of the gospel. It's the bloodiest century on record historically. We have two world wars, the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, entire cities destroyed by a single bomb. We have the firebombing, napalming of untold hundreds of thousands, millions of people with an estimated 123 million deaths, violent deaths, just in the world, just in the wars of the 20th century. Now, I, I, faith is the st- statistician, but if you take go back and you look at the entire world population in 1 AD when Jesus was born. It was only slightly more than the number killed in the wars of the 20th century. Apocalyptic disaster is well underway. There's unprecedented violence that has been unleashed. As Gerard has said, put it, by getting closer to Alpha, that is Jesus as the Alpha and Omega, we are going toward Omega. By better understanding the origin, we can see every day a little better that the origin is coming closer. The apocalypse is unleashed, and this is what Jesus predicts in his own estimation. I have come not to bring peace, but a sword. And so the demonic is unleashed through a kind of perverse Christianity. A Christianity that is made, that is bent. The truth bent is more powerful than a lie, a bold lie. And so Christ exposed the lie of retaliation, the notion of scapegoat, of sacrificing the demonic other. And those who kill, demonize, and oppress in the name of Jesus... In the book of Revelation, by the way, these are depicted as the great whore of Babylon. Maybe this is the majority of Christians today. As in Revelation, the good news of a new cosmic order is linked to this nearly unbearable, unbelievable reality that I think we see unfolding in our world today. The mystery hidden since the foundation of the world, the truth of human identity has been spoken by Jesus. And the truth is refused, continue to be refused for a lie. But now God demands all men everywhere to repent. That is, the lie is no longer a refuge. Jesus sums it up four times in all four Gospels. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. That is, your own efforts at saving your life, your own religious efforts, your own technology, your own science, your own wisdom. Apply that to saving your life and you'll destroy it. 
And whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels shall save Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.